Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses is 80 years old. He has lived a lot of life. He has seen, no doubt, a lot of things. <laughs> Between his growing up years in Egypt and the 40 years that he had spent out in the wilderness keeping sheep for his father-in-law. But in Exodus chapter 3, at the beginning of this chapter, he sees something that he has never seen before and probably never saw again which was a bush that was out there in the desert on fire, but yet not burning up and being actually consumed. And so he goes over to take a look at this bush, and God speaks to him when that happens, and he recruits him for a job that Moses is not at all interested in performing. Uh, and yet, uh, unlike today, where if you get offered a job, you can totally... Uh, say, I'm not interested in that, no thank you, I'm moving on to the next possibility. This is God giving Moses the job, and so Moses tries his best to get out of it, but God's not having that. But for the rest of chapter 3 and into chapter 4, Moses is giving all the excuses that he possibly can think of to get out of this assignment. Most of them have to do with how inadequate he feels personally for this job, but one of the things that he says back to God actually has to do with God himself. Um, so let's, let's start reading here, uh, beginning here in verse 12. God has said, I will be with you. This shall be the sign for you that I've sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, which is Yahweh. It's going to be Lord in all caps in your Bible. The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus am I to be remembered throughout all generations. So God's name, Yahweh, the Lord, it basically has to do with I exist. I am. I am life itself. All life comes from me. And so this is a very powerful message to preach to a nation of people that for all intents and purposes are dead. The Israelites are trapped in slavery that they're not getting out of by themselves. And they've been down there for many, many, many years already. And so it, uh, even though it looks hopeless, God communicates this message to them that this is his identity and therefore anything is possible. And so what we're going to do is we're going to stay here in the context of this statement that God makes here and pull out of Exodus 2 and 3 four different things that we can learn about God that this name implies about who he is. God is not the God of the dead. 
but he's the God of the living. That's what all this is going to be about. So let's think about what does God's name say about him? For one thing, it says that he is a constant reminder of life throughout every single generation of mankind that comes and goes on the face of this earth. I want to look at this with you. Notice in chapter 3, verse 6. So as, as he is telling Moses, take off your shoes. Don't come to, near to the bush with your shoes on. Get them off your feet. This is holy ground. You've got to treat that like that it is. And verse 6, he says, uh, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So um, this is interesting because, you know, as the readers of Exodus, we know right off the bat what's in that bush, who it is that's speaking to Moses from that bush. It's an angel of the Lord. It's from the God of all gods. But keep in mind, as Moses walks up to this thing and starts to hear this voice talking to him, he doesn't know what this is. He, he's got to be introduced to this voice uh, and the fire. And, and so God does that there in verse 6. You know, Moses and God are going to have countless personal conversations over the course of the next 40 years. But this is the very first one that they have together, as far as we know. It's kind of cool to think about that. But what is God, what's the first thing that God says about himself? He says, I'm the God of your ancestors, specifically three of them. <laughs> you know, Moses had a lot of family going back up the tree, but three of them are picked out in particular. You know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, God could have said, I'm the God of Adam, or I'm the God of Methuselah, and that would be perfectly accurate but he picks out these particular guys because special promises had been made to these three individuals that Moses came from and all the rest of the Israelites. You know, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been given the promise of land, a new land in Canaan, and a blessing and a large family that would be made from them that would be this light to the nations to teach everyone about God and to bless all the peoples of the lands. But at this point in their history, it didn't look like any of those promises were actually going to happen because, again, the Israelites have been slaves in Egypt for such a long period of time uh, up to this point, hundreds, hundreds of years, in fact. And so the, Egypt was slaughtering the baby boys, just throwing the kids out into the Nile River uh, to, to try to decimate their population and bring them under subjection in that way. And, and they're, they're under forced labor and all the horrors that come with slavery in the ancient world in this kind of way. There's, there's suffering, there's violence, and there's chaos. But here's the thing about that. Were these, these, this generation of Israelites, were they the first ones to suffer from violence and chaos? <laughs> now you think about how the very first generation suffered that. Because Adam and Eve, when they got kicked out of the garden, they started having babies. But you know what one of their sons did to the other one? <laughs> Killed them. And you know what happens when Noah and his family and their generation comes onto the earth? What is the world like in Genesis 6? 
The world is filled. The text in Genesis 6 says the world is filled with violence. Everybody's thoughts were only evil continually. His generation suffered that too. On, on some kind of level, every generation of people that come into this broken world suffer. Suffer violence and chaos in all different kinds of ways. We all feel the desolation that, that sin has wreaked on this world. But when you and I suffer, it kind of feels like there's never been suffering like ours because it's personal, right? It hurts us. Not hurting somebody in a history book hundreds of years ago. And so God in every generation, when the new generation comes and they hurt and they're in pain in all kinds of ways, God comes along and says, here's who I am. He makes promises and then he does something in that generation or, or around that generation to demonstrate and prove his power to bring life from death. He does that in this generation in a very powerful way. And he introduces that by saying, I'm the I am. I am existence. So I can give existence whenever I want to. And he's going to show that in a powerful way with Moses and the Exodus and taking the people out of their death and into life. And this is such an encouragement for us when we go back and read this text because we're the generation living here now. And we suffer chaos and violence in different ways. And this is his reminder to us. And now with the perspective of Jesus, who's been our great Exodus leader from sin and death, we have a perfect rear, rear view window <laughs> uh, mirror into everything that he has planned for this world and draw encouragement from that. So that's number one. He's a constant reminder of life through every generation. But something else that, that God's name says about him from this passage is that absolutely nothing escapes his notice. Look at how this is brought out of the text. Chapter 2, verse 24. So before the burning bush, chapter 2, verse 24, God heard their groaning, talk about the Israelites, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. So no notice that, four things in that one verse. God heard, he remembered, he saw, and he knew. And that's, that cycle is just kind of kind of repeat itself through the text. Chapter 3, verse 7. Look at this. The Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their sufferings. Right? He saw, he heard, he knew. Two verses later, verse 9. Look at this. Now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. So he heard, I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. So verse 10, he's going to do something about that. Verse 16, look at this. Go and gather the uh, elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Notice how that's just how he keeps identifying himself throughout this whole text. 
I'm the God of those three people. He's appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. Why is it so important for God to keep making this point over and over and over again that I see you, I've heard you, I, I know everything about your situation? Well, because it sure looks like God has dropped them off in the time of Joseph in the land of Goshen during the time of the famine back in Genesis. He took them down there and then he just left them. He just forgot about them. He just evaporated from the scene until the Egyptians looked over and said, hey, uh, they're kind of a threat to us. And we think also they'd be a great slave force for us to, in, to oppress. And so, that for, again, for hundreds of years, this has been their story, and it looks hopeless by this point. And whenever you're in pain, time passes more slowly, doesn't it? <laughs> it really does. And so you just imagine in, in 224, 223, the kinds of groanings and the kinds of crying out and the kinds of prayers that are being offered by these people uh, to a God that it appeared like wasn't listening at all to their cries. But just because he didn't directly come down in a whirlwind and say, hey, I'm doing something about this, didn't mean that. He was inactive because Moses was born and God guided Moses throughout his life until when he was 80 years old, he's now ready to send back to deliver all the people. God was doing something all along in their history. They just couldn't see it. But so he says to them, but I see you. And I know all about how you hurt and how you groan and how your baby boy was killed yesterday in the Nile River and the rapes and the pillages and the plunders and all the terrible things that you've experienced. I know every bit of it, and I'm coming down to save you. Do we really believe this point, that nothing escapes his notice? Because this is true of us, too. This is the same I am that we serve today. But if you're like me, sometimes you have very strong urges to grab hold of another human and to take hold of their ear and not let go of it. <laughs> and to unload your situation and your pain onto this person so that somebody else can understand what I'm feeling like and what I'm going through and what this does to me. And, and if we're not careful, that kind of urge can come from a heart that forgets this point, that there is someone who already knows everything about it and understands it more completely than we even understand it ourselves, let alone some other human who's trying to get a grapple on what we're going through to the best of their ability. But God sees and hears and knows and observes it all. And he is, whether or not we can actually see with our senses or not, he is furiously working this very day to deliver us from the brokenness of this life in all kinds of ways that we're not aware of. But ultimately, of course, through his son, who we do know of in great detail. It's interesting that when you go to Genesis 49, right before Jacob dies, he gathered all of his sons to his bedside. And when he was talking to his son, Dan, 
He told his son, I wait for your salvation. I wait for your salvation. And that is a message that was very appropriate for his sons and their sons in the generations that came right after them. They had to wait a while. And when we're all in pain in different ways, we might have to wait a while for that to be resolved too. But be encouraged by this. That God's not oblivious. He knows. He knows everything about you. What happens to you, and he's coming. All right, let's move on to the third idea here. That something else that God's name says about him is that he does whatever he wants to do with his creation. Let's bring this out of the text. So chapter 3, look here in verse 8. So right after he told Moses, I've seen, I've heard, I know, he says in verse 8, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. I think it's interesting that in the ancient world in which these people lived, when people thought about the gods, they thought of the gods as only in control of little regional areas, little pockets of land here and there. And in fact, in the book of 1 Kings in chapter 20, we actually have an, a narrative about the Syrian soldiers who kind of come down to fight the Israelites, and they lose a battle, but they say to themselves, but we lost that battle because, you know, God is the God, the Hebrew God's the God of that area. And so if we go over here and we fight the Israelites on this battleground, we'll win because that God can't do anything over here. <laughs> and God comes to the, to the wicked King Ahab and his people and says, because they've said that, I'm going to let you win that battle too. <laughs> and so God is always able to accomplish his will no matter what area he's looking at. And, and that's the point here, that, that he, he's saying, I have power over Egypt in verse 8. I'm going to go down to Egypt with you, and I'm going to exert my power over, the, over Pharaoh and his, his dominion and over the gods of Egypt, and I'm going to bring them out. It's kind of a twofold promise in verse 8. Did you notice that? I'm going to bring my people out of the most powerful empire of this time, and I'm going to bring them into a land that's populated by mighty nations of Canaanites. It's, there are already people living there, and they're stronger. Both nations, both areas have strong people in them that would wipe out the Israelites if they didn't have God. But God says, look what I'm going to do. Just watch me work with the kind of power that I have. And, and this is kind of repeated also uh, there in verse 17. Notice again when Moses is talking with God. In verse 17, he says, And I promise, ESV, I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. You know, it's kind of, he could have just said, 
where the Canaanites live. But he makes the list, and he makes the list a couple of times, not to, to bore us or anything, but to say, uh, it doesn't matter how many nations you pile up against my forces, against me, I'm going to wipe out everybody to give you the blessing that I promised to give you. I will do this. Look at, keep reading. Verse, eight, verse 18. They will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, Yahweh, I am, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So guess whose hand is going to come? So, verse 20, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he'll let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall, a woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So shall you plunder the Egyptians. Do you notice the tone of this text? It's not, well, you know, I've, I've made all these plans and I've tried to think carefully about this, but we'll just see how this goes. No, God is saying, this is going to happen. He, there, there's no doubt in his mind. Now, remember that when, when you read the book of James, Christians are discouraged from talking this way. We, we're not allowed to say, we're just going to go, you know, on this day and buy and sell and make a profit. You know, we're supposed to say, if the Lord wills. We don't know the future but God understands the future because he makes the future. He doesn't just know what ahead of time. He constructs time to play out exactly the way he wants it to be. That is astounding. You know, the Bible tells us we are made in the image of God, but there are things that God can do that are entirely different. <laughs> from what we do as humans, as his image bearers. Um, we have no ability to do that. No, master chess players have the ability to think several, maybe many several moves ahead on the chessboard and try to manipulate the game to be played in the way that they want it to be played. But that doesn't work with life because we, can't, we don't have any control over the future. There's too many variables, too many things that can go awry. We don't even know if we have our next breath. But God says, here's what the elders of Israel are going to do. Here's what you're going to do. Here's what Pharaoh's going to do. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's what your Egyptian neighbors are going to do. And here's how it's all going to work out in the end. <laughs> God is intricately involved in making the tiniest details of life fit in exactly into his picture of what the world should turn into. He has that kind of power. Everything from the flow of conversations to the jewelry in the saddlebags and the clothes on your sons and daughters, he's saying, 
It's all going to happen. I planned it all out. He does whatever he pleases with his creation. This is such an important point for us to think about because this, is a, this affects the way we think about God interacting with the world. You know, we often say, we often use this phrase, God's in control. God's in control. But what do we mean by that? <laughs> do we mean that, well, he's sitting next to the steering wheel and he's mostly just letting things play out and occasionally he kind of reaches over and grabs it and rights the ship but for the most part he just kind of watches it happen that is not what the scriptures portray when we're talking about our god and what he does with his creatures and what he does with this creation this world he is he is he is extremely active on every kind of level with us in our lives in making things play out the way he wants them to be Yes, we have free will. That doesn't override that. He's able to use free will and weave things together in a way that causes him glory and for our good. All right, number four. What does God's name say about him? He's called the I am, but what does that mean? Number four, it means he is the only completely independent being that exists. In the entire universe. And it's interesting, you we, we're not I didn't put I didn't put different scriptures for that point. We can use the exact same scriptures for this point to make this point too. You notice that? So regardless of where you're looking here, notice that God doesn't say that his work hinges on anybody. You know, he, since he exists, he is the I am, all of life comes from him. He doesn't depend on life any of his creatures to do things the right kind of way so that he can perform his plans and he certainly didn't need to consult anybody uh, for what he planned to do he didn't say now moses i got together the council of angels and we kicked it around for a while and we came up with the exodus plan no he said this is what i i'm doing this is what i will do this is what i've decided to do and this is going to happen regardless of whether people throw their heart into his plans or not. Kind of reminds me of the book of Esther. Remember in Esther 4, 14, Mordecai uh, sends a message to, to Esther, Queen Esther, who is married to the king of Persia. And, he, and she's having some hesitancy about playing her part in, in the role of trying to save the, the Jews from the hand of Haman. And, and Mordecai just tells her, look, God's going to save the Jews. It's going to happen because he's God. And if you don't do what you need to do with this, salvation will arise from some other source. God can use anybody he wants to uh, to accomplish his will. The only question is whether you're going to take part willingly or not. It kind of also reminds me of how Jesus uh, told the people around him, if, if I am not praised, the stones are going to cry out praise to my name. I will be praised. I will be honored. I will be glorified. But are we going to be doing that or not? Um, so unlike God, we're not like this. We're not autonomous. We're not independent beings. But sometimes we try to live that way. 
and we try to pretend that we don't really need intimate connections with other people uh, in order to live. But it's interesting how, uh, you know, when you look at the secular world, science and people who, who research and people who think about how our bodies and minds work are starting to come out with research that tells us that if, if we have social isolation and loneliness, if those are, are part of our lives that's tied to early death. Did you know that? I was reading a CNN article about this uh, subject yesterday, in fact. And this article said, and I don't know, uh, maybe we can ask Lance about this later, whether this is true or not, or somebody else. Uh, but according to this article, loneliness, it can be as lethal as smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day. So people are talking about the enormous devastation that going off by yourself, living by yourself, not having close community connections with others, that has a extremely detrimental effect on your well-being and your body. Uh, but I don't know about that, but I do know that scripturally speaking, we are created to be interdependent, to rely upon our brothers and sisters in Christ, and most of all, obviously, to rely upon our God. So many Bible passages make this point. I was in the Proverbs recently. Um, I uh, recently worked through it with some of our, our young guys, and I was really struck by several of them. Proverbs 18, verse 1, really hit me, and I think I quoted this recently before with you guys. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Proverbs 24, verse 6, By wise guidance you can wage your war, and in abundance of counselors there is victory. Hopefully we never reach an age where we think that we have figured out lives to the point that we don't have to consult other wise people around us or read the words of other wise people who have put down thoughts for us to think about, um, our God is in an entirely different category. Uh, and so this is the way he works. He is completely independent, but he expects us to look at this, what he's given us, and to connect with each other about it. But, but here's what I want to come down to, and this is what I quoted at the beginning of the sermon. Luke chapter 20, Jesus is in a conversation with people who did not believe that the resurrection happens. Um, and it's interesting what he says to them as they're trying to trap him in a question that they have asked to, show, to try to show that there's no resurrection. He says this, that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. So Jesus used Exodus 3 in his conversations with the people around him. And he used it to make this point that since God is I am, since God has made these promises to different people that he's created, he's got to keep those promises. And the only way for him to do that is to resurrect dead people back to life. He's not the God of the dead, 
but of the living. God doesn't just exist. He is existence itself. Not in the pantheistic sense of God's in the rocks and God's in the trees and everything is God. No, we serve a God who created all of the rocks and the trees and the people and the things that we understand around us. He has the power to make us exist even after we breathe our last breath. My apologies. And he has the compassion to do it. Sorry, I don't know what that was about. And, and so, because of all this, he deserves the wholehearted praise of this assembly today. This is why we're, we're coming together here. And it's interesting, when you look at Exodus 3, what did God tell Moses about what they're all going to do after they get out of their, free, after their slavery? He says, you're going to go down there and you're going to explain that we're all coming to this mountain to worship, to serve. We're going to go to Mount Sinai after you get out of that, that mess in Egypt, and, and come before me. And that's what we're doing today. So we're not coming to Mount Sinai. Hebrews says, we have come to Mount Zion. We've come to the city of the living God. We've come to myriads of angels. We've come to, to a party, to a feast in heavenly places. And that's not just a scene, kind of like what Herb's been emphasizing in the book of Revelation. That's not, that Hebrew scene is not a description of what life is going to be like when we get to heaven. This is talking about now. It's talking about the blessings that we enjoy in Christ. That's what we've come to celebrate uh, in this Lord's Supper feast that we will now partake of together.